Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all up to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18 plus. Subscription required. T's and C's apply. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021 and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelfy episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfy. We are still practicing safe social distancing and this podcast is being recorded remotely. During this recording, I had a couple of technical issues with my microphone, so please do ignore any hiccups with the sound. I'm excited to tell you that this year's shortlist is out and the six brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. Today's guest is Labour MP Jess Phillips. Jess is one of Westminster's most outspoken members who has forged a formidable reputation as a people's champion and defender of the underdog. She has served Birmingham Yardley since 2015 and has been Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding in Keir Starmer's opposition front bench since 2020. She's also an author. Every Woman, released in 2017, is part memoir, part reflection on womanhood. And Truth to Power, Seven Ways to Call Time on BS, is her pragmatic guide for calling out bullies, cheats and liars, whilst imparting her signature style of straight-talking wisdom into the mix. Her forthcoming book, Everything You Really Need to Know About Politics, My Life as an MP, is out in July, in which she lifts the lid on the systems and rules that govern us all and in her own inimitable style, shows us what's really going on in British politics. So welcome to the podcast, Jess. How are you doing today? I'm quite warm and I'm in an airless room in London. <laughs> um, but other than that, I'm all good. Good, good, good. Now, would you say most of the reading you do is political or do you use reading as a means to escape? Yeah, hardly any of the reading that I do is in any way political. Um, it's a bit like when there's a new documentary about sort of domestic abuse and people are like, oh, did you watch that? And I think, no, I watched The Bake Off. Um, yeah. Because I tend to like to escape um, from uh, the the sort of stuff I have to deal with at work. Um, mm. Yeah, I very rarely read political books or political memoirs. Um, I tend to read easygoing literature um, before I go to bed at night. Obviously, I have to read reams and reams of papers very, very quickly and take on board information very, very fast every day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, reading could become a massive chore to me. Um, But so that's why I tend to I tend to go for the sort of more easygoing slash fantasy. Mm. And have you always been a big reader? Um, I like to say that I have. I definitely was when I was a kid. Um, I read uh, prolifically when I was a kid. Um, 
and um but then there were years when I remember when my youngest son was three and a half years old so my eldest would have been seven and I read a book for the first time since having a baby so there was seven Mm. years of my life when I didn't read a single book and I remember being on a campsite and uh, reading a book while my children ran around this field where they were completely enclosed. And I read a book for the first time in seven years. And I don't think I'd even really read the newspapers or even anything really in those intervening years. I mean, that's not true, actually. I read a lot of children's books in that time. Um, But yeah, no, I I really didn't, um, I didn't read very much in those years. Do you remember what the book was that you went back to? Yeah, it was, uh, I can't remember the name of the author, although it was a woman, and I almost exclusively read books by women, incidentally. Um, it's it's a way of me uh, just basically, I, I feel like it's a seal of approval, and I don't have to find out that much about the book when I go on to the next book on my Kindle that's being suggested to me. Um, but it was called The American Wife. Um, and, um, it was, it, it, you did, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil it for people, but it's, a, it's about one of the presidents. It's a sort of fictionalized reality of, uh, the first, the life of the, of, um, of the first lady. I won't say which one because it, it becomes uh, apparent throughout the book. Um, but I didn't realize when I was reading it that that's what it was about. I thought it was just a story of this woman. Um, and then, uh, you realize that who it's about and it becomes even more fascinating it could have been literally the worst book in the whole world but it was the first book that I had read in seven <laughs> years and so I was like this is a massive great thought <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, would you say that lockdown has changed your reading habits at all and tastes um I've, I've definitely read more over lockdown um I don't think it's changed my taste but again I think it's made me really 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 lean into um sort of much more real life fiction like niceness uh like 30 something woman seeks love sort of fiction rather than you know I did really I mean I'm a big fan and always have been of dystopian novels and so I I really don't want to read about dystopia at the moment when when living through it not what's Uh, living in it (laughs) yeah exactly I feel a bit like this is just too real um so yeah I I, but I've definitely read more books during uh lockdown and um it made me uh, encourage my my sons uh to read a lot more as well because frankly it is a quick and easy way to homeschool is to say read like I made my sons read um all of the Adrian Mole books um which are my which are my favorite books in the world and then I reread them um as a sort of you know so, so that we could I could test them to see if they'd actually read them uh, and and ask them questions about the the themes uh, and the political themes in it because it was an easy way to homeschool it was not on their syllabus and it will not help them pass their GCSE <laughs> But I'm sure you you enjoyed it, and so did they. Yeah. So it's just there is no time in my life when I can't read the Adrian Mole books and just enjoy them deeply. So thank you so much, Jess. So getting on to your first bookshelfy book, which is mm-hmm. Wild Swans by Jung Chan. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what this book is about? So the book is about um, it is about three generations of women, uh, political women. Um, before the Cultural Revolution in China, during Mao's Cultural Revolution, and then 
China post. Uh, I mean, not China post as it is today, because um, this book was written some 25, 30 years ago now. Um, but uh, I read it, I read it, oh gosh, um, 20, it must be 20 odd years ago now, yeah. Um, but it's it's basically this, the sort of untold story of the history of communism in China through the experiences of women who were part of the military, who were part of the political scene. And it's a generation, so it's her grandma, her mother, and then her. And it is just, I think that I didn't realise at the time, it's very easy to paste back um, my husband taught me the term backronym yesterday, which is when an acronym is made up. Uh, post time, I did not, I'd never heard of that word before. But it's very easy for me to paste onto my experience of reading uh, Wild Swans as some sort of revelation about the idea that there were women involved in history at all who weren't monarchs. That there were, because I studied history and I'd read it whilst I was studying a degree in history. Um, that there were women who were intrinsic to the story and the the movement forward of the politics of the time. And now I look back and I think, you know, I absolutely loved this book. And I definitely just read it because it was the thickest book on my mum's bookshelf. And it looked like a sort of like I was at university and, you know, you're a bit like, you know, pretentious when you're at university. And so I was a bit like, oh, you know, it's like one of those books like you have to have read sort of thing. So I thought I'm going to mm. read this. But I absolutely loved it. And I remember being on a campsite in, uh, in on the border of France and Spain. I'd gone to see my boyfriend who was surfing there for the summer. I mean, I'm literally sound like some sort of terrible student. Um, and I'd gone to stay with him and, um, and there were all these surfers and we were all living in this sort of commune. And it was it was very, uh, you know, it was very liberating and exciting. And I just lay in a tent and read this book for the, almost the entire time I was there uh, because I loved it so much. And it will forever in my head be associated with a terrible French pop song about the Champs-Élysées, which played in the bar near my, uh, as I was reading it, it played like on repeat, you know, back in the 90s when like you'd hit like a Euro pop sensation uh, and it played on repeat. And so whenever I think of Wild Swans of the Cultural Revolution, I think of this song. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Would you say that you came from a political family growing up? Yes, 100%. My family are deeply political. It wasn't an uh, option. It was like religion you it was what you did at the weekends and in the week um you you were activated so on like a monday the women's group would come round and sit in my house and then on tuesday it would be the people who would organize the co-op for the vegetables for the community um it would be like you know the cnd meetings would be happening in in your garden on a thursday and everything in between. I went to Women's Liberation Playgroup, uh, which was set up by the wow. group of political women in my in my uh, in my area because the women we didn't have organised childcare uh, back then. But the women decided that they wanted to go out and work, so they basically set up a cooperative childcare system where everybody did a day. Um, and you know, you they they raise money to have some what we used to term nursery nurses. I'm sure that's deeply politically incorrect now, but that's what we used to call them. Um, where uh, and the women would take it in turns to do their day, so that the that women could go out and work. So yeah, my my upbringing was so political. At the weekends, we would I would be made to make leaflets on an old like duplicator in my dad's garage. 
Um, and then we'd go and put up posters. We were always campaigning for something. I was always like releasing balloons, making handprints for Greenham Common to ban the bomb. Yeah, so it was really, really, really political. And every single day uh, we would sit around a dinner table and we would talk about, uh, you know, the politics of the day. And these were this was Thatcher's Britain. So um, it was uh, there was a huge amount of debate in my house. Mm. So that being said, were your ambitions always political? And did you sort of know from a young age that you wanted a career that involved, you know, sort of advocating for others? Um, yes, basically. I, but then there's lots of reasons why I think so that I always wanted to advocate for others because from birth, my parents had basically told me that that's what you do. You know, you stick up for people who can't stick up for themselves mm. and you you recognise all your privileges all the time. Um, and so that was really beaten into me. But also, like, that's what both my parents did. My dad was a teacher in Hansworth in, um, in Birmingham and he specialised in teaching uh, from the 1960s uh, until the 1980s in teaching kids who were newly settled migrants to um, our communities. Um, and mm. so my dad quite unbelievably especially now he's nearly 80 can speak in absolutely perfect patois which is one of the funniest things <laughs> you will ever see um but he, and wow. he can speak Punjabi and um so he he's he was wow. an English teacher um but he really he sort of massively dedicated his uh teaching career to teaching kids English uh, when uh, when either it wasn't their their first and common language or um, teaching uh, migrant communities throughout the you know 60s 70s 80s and 80s like it was it was never just like you can just be a teacher it was you have to mm. you have to look at the people who need the most input and and be working with them and my mum similarly she worked um, either in charities or um, sort of like quasi-civil service uh, working to improve mm. things in the NHS but she mainly focused on the fact that in uh, the, the sort of health inequalities in the West Midlands so in the 90s for example there was you know one in three babies born in some parts of Birmingham died um, because of you know whether they were refugee communities or newly settled communities and the the massive health inequalities. So whatever your chosen field was going to be, you had to you know that's what my parents did. That you pick the thing mm. that is the gonna you know that's going to equalise things for people. So yeah, there was no real alternative mm. to me. And so when I went to work, I didn't. My political ambitions, whilst you know, I really enjoyed politics and talking about politics and everything. My political ambitions were much more about becoming like a person who works in an organisation that seeks to equalise things rather than being like, you know, a, a political mm. frontline player. That's interesting because, you know, sometimes when somebody's grown up with parents that have, you know, particular, um, operate within particular spaces, they kind of rebel and are like, I'm going to go the opposite way. But it seems that there must have been a real kind of like... I don't know, like reverence for your parents' way of life and political ideology that you decided to follow from quite an early age. It doesn't sound like you went through a phase where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to do something completely different. Did you? 
Um, no, I'd, I'd never. Uh, I mean, my biggest rebellion would have been being conservative. There is almost nothing I could do that would have offended <laughs> my parents or that they wouldn't have been tried to be cool about. Um, but apart from had I been really Tory or married a Tory, I think that. <laughs> although I think that now my dad would <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had I been really conservative, or that would have been, they would have found that really, really deeply difficult. I think there's never been a moment mm. where they wouldn't have been proud of the jobs that I'd taken up. I have to say. So your second bookshelfie is How to Be a Woman by Catelyn Moran. Please tell us a little bit about the book and when it was that you read it. So um, the the book is the first, I would say, of what is now a very well-trodden genre um, of sort of modern-day feminist texts. Um, so obviously I was raised by a feminist mother who, you know, read Simone de Beauvoir and, and, um, and the female eunuch was in constant discussion by some women's group in my house or fear of flying and fat is a feminist issue and all of those sorts of books um, from the era before. And then there was a fallow period in, say, the, the, I'd say the, the, the late 1980s, the early 1990s, where the sort of Thatcherism was saying, oh, women have it all now. You've got it all. You've got work. You've got everything. And there was a sort of lull in the idea of feminism. And then uh, Catelyn Moran um, wrote her book, um, How to Be a Woman. And it was the first of, hang on a minute, I'm not entirely sure that everything is all mm. right. But it was written, uh, it's, it's funny. It's not like sort of angry women, which was very much my experience of feminism in the 1980s, was basically people doing primal screams in my living room and being really cross about everything. Um, but And this, it, it is a joyous book that tries to sort of rebirth feminism. And I think it did it very successfully, I have to say. It was it was a wildly successful book. But also it sort of bred this... Uh, what would we would call call this new, new wave of feminism that we have now that seems like it's you know there's new books every year that come out uh, and and obviously the sort of popularity of things like um uh, the handmaid's tale and the, there is a re- in the zeitgeist there is this issue of uh feminism but then they're really it was really in the building blocks and so the book is just about like you don't have to be really cross but these are the things that are a bit more rubbish for women and it was written by a, a, a working class woman from the midlands and so i felt like oh look i could i could be a sort of feminist activist um like that's okay i don't have to be cross like those women were in the early 1980s around my house it can be like a joyous thing um as well as a really important thing and so the, the book is uh, is about that it's about sort of like what sex is like for women it is about like mass like women it's the first ever book i think that i read where a woman talked about masturbating um mm. and like you know that nowadays that seems like passe but then it was just a bit yeah. like oh yeah look oh yeah she's gonna say that she's gonna do it. it's like massive oversharing also it was um the last book my mum ever my mum read it and gave it to me which she used to do all the time my mum was it, you know I've never met a prolific reader like my mother never like she would literally on holiday she would take like three t-shirts and just a whole suitcase full of books and she would have read them all by the end of the week she but she never remembered a single bloody detail about any other books but she could read really <laughs> really fast um 
and she she absolutely she consumed books she was one of those kids who went to the library and um as a sort of working lonely working class kid um and so she absolutely consumed that and it was the last book that she gave me before she died um and she said you should read this book and uh she died just a few months later so um you know i think that that is why it is uh for a number of different reasons also catelyn is now my friend <laughs> so um, one of my friends once said to me you only became a politician so catelyn moran would become your friend <laughs> <laughs> um so also speaking to um you know the feminist that you described and the images of feminism that you described in the 80s and 90s sort of women that were um you know angry and obviously you know having good reason to be angry but still that not necessarily being some the only sort of um representation of feminism that you wanted to see do you feel that there has been a shift now in terms or at least a meaningful shift in terms of how feminists are viewed or do you feel that we still have some way to go because feminism has definitely found its way into the mainstream but simultaneously there are still conversations about you know i guess maybe we talk less of angry feminists but like SJWs in terms of social justice warriors and women can be sort of characterised as angry in a slightly different way but I want your yeah. thoughts not mine it's our shot yeah, <laughs> I think we're in a de- we're in dangerous territory here of the angry feminists. Actually, you know, nowadays the sort of angry moniker mm. gets given to um, not just feminists more generally. Um, mm. Although you know it's definitely been said about me, but it is definitely an intersectional feminism, like a tool used to bash intersectional feminists, say black feminists. Uh, but mm. you know, the idea of the angry black woman is is never far away, um, and so it's without question we have a long way to go huge amount of progress that still needs to be made but I do I do think that when that feminism has become the mainstream is both a plus and a minus so um, the fact that more people like my sons who are 16 and uh, 12 like they are completely au fait in a way that my husband certainly wasn't when he was 16 or 12 or even my brothers weren't when they were that age being raised by very strident feminists uh, incidentally my husband also went to women's liberation playgroup as well so uh, we our eyes met across the the toast uh, that's how we get together then obviously um but the um the 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 trouble so my sons are much more afraid with the idea of consent for example and much more uh, able to recognize the experiences of the girls in their school in a manner that they understand why things have to be different for them and accept that things have to be different for the girls rather than being Mm. annoyed and angry that oh you know apart from still that this will never ever go away the idea that girls get out of Mm. things because of their periods and I keep saying to my sons would you like to have periods because that's the alternative my friend um but so there is definitely and there is definitely more of a sense amongst young women uh, today of what should and shouldn't be tolerated than there was even when I was a teenager when we tolerated so much even though the same bad things are happening the level of tolerance to them is massively massively down now and that is a good thing However, the mainstreaming of feminism is inevitably becomes like a marketing tool. Um, and the, the, the trouble is, is that, you know, it's it, big companies ask me all the time to come and talk to them about feminism. And I always say, well, what is your gender pay gap before I'm going to turn up? 
um, because the the reality is is that you can't just talk about these things. Activism actually matters, like actually setting up a women's liberation playgroup so that the women can go to work rather than just talking about how it's unfair that childcare is rubbish. Like activism for change means something and it can't just be covered. It's a bit like mental health um, awareness. Like I'm glad that mental health awareness is, is, is a is. Um, it is much much better than it was when I was a kid but I think it sometimes acts as a screen for any actual change in the area um, and, and services are still so hard to reach like they're, they're, they're really for a very tiny minority of people will ever be able to activate mental health services yet the fact that you know I get on the train and they're saying have a cup of tea for mental health awareness and it's just a bit like I don't want a sticking plaster I want change and so that is where I think that we have to be really careful about the zeitgeist versus what actually that means in the future thank you Jess and speaking of sort of change and you know real change how do you feel about what it is to be a woman in you know the very traditionally male world of British politics do you feel as though I mean obviously I suppose it is certainly more representative than it ever has been um, historically in terms of um, you know gender representation but do you feel you know, as though there has been meaningful change, how difficult is it still as a woman to navigate that world? And I suppose, what do you think, quite a big question, but what do you think um, should potentially change to make it, you know, easier to navigate that world as a woman? Yeah, I mean, there's so much that needs to still change. I mean, even just the, the very institution is exclusive, isn't it? You know, like every day you can read in the newspapers about money being spent on x y and z and it just feels so distant from most people's lives and the place is built to seem distant from people's lives um and it it, it is you know almost phallic in its uh in in its sort of dominance on the landscape um so the the, but you know it is it is better and I have to say personally on a personal level I don't I haven't particularly I mean I, I haven't particularly struggled in the building with the pomp and with mm. the with the things that are meant to keep me out because the more that I feel like I'm trying to be kicked um, kept out the more I feel like I should kick the door in and be more who I am and so I lean into that and I get strength from that obviously I have suffered terrible abuse and harassment and threats on my life and the life of my children in a way that male politicians just simply don't and so but the thing that I think is hardest for a woman in politics is the constant having to explain yourself like it your situ- and it's the same in almost every walk of life is that your experience isn't the default and until the woman's experience of politics of Westminster of an online political space until a woman's experience is the default you spend your whole life precursoring every single talk of change more generally with well this is what it and it's just so bloody tiring isn't it it's so tiring it's a bit like after the blm you just felt for especially black women just having to constantly explain what it's like to be Mm. a black woman and it is just 
it's so tiring that you're still put in the position. I don't no none of us mind doing it. Like I don't mind doing it. That's fine. I understand that I've got to be there. The whole point is to be there, to be the voice of a different sort of experience of those who've always had the voices. I don't mind that. That's mm. the gig. But it's so tiring when you get into a meeting and you think, oh God, am I gonna have to do this again? And you will then get pigeonholed um for being like, oh you know this is when it's like for women and it's just like you don't understand how tense and horrible it is to never be the default experience so in lockdown when we went into lockdown the idea that a woman a working woman with children was the default experience that they were sitting planning in that room is so far from the reality of what happened no one talked about childcare. No one talked about domestic abuse. No one thought about people who were on certain uh, contracts. Like the, the wedding industry is a really good example of the one that was absolutely decimated uh, without any thought for how those people are employed. And that's because they are almost exclusively all women. And it was just, it is just so tiring. That is the thing that I find hardest is that we are 100 years away from a woman's experience being the default. We are 200 years away from a black woman's experience being the default. You know, it's like, and it's this constant labour that you have to do. When you could be, the labour that you're doing, it should be, um, like, you know, being ploughed into something that's more productive than just explaining the basics. Um, I was thinking after the Sarah Everard murder when everybody was talking about all the things that they have to do, like the way we have to plan our routes and bring our friends and we spend so much time risk assessing our own lives. And I thought, God, if I had all of that time back, I could have made a really good stop frame animation film with the time (laughs) and patience that I've put into my own personal safety. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. Your third book, Shelfie book, is Heartburn by Nora Ephron. Tell us a bit about the book and why it is you love it. Oh my gosh, I absolutely love this book and I've only just recently read it and I cannot believe that I hadn't read it before because um, it is just absolutely brilliant. So it's a book about Nora Ephron's actual life. Now Nora Ephron, much more famously than writing this book, um, wrote uh, when Harry Met Sally, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, she is essentially the darling of um, the sort of intelligent New York rom-com. Uh, when I said the darling, I was about to say the only other person I can think of who falls into that category is certainly not a darling, and that is Woody Allen. Um, and, yeah. yeah. So less said about that. Uh, Nora Ephron is... Um, and, and this book is about her husband running off with another man. Um, and it is just so delightfully acerbic. Um, and I think 
the reason that I love it is because it is clever and it is funny as hell and there's loads I have to keep looking up words when I was reading it because there's loads it's about she's a food writer she it, it, the sort of fictionalized version is she's a food writer and she's a Jewish woman and she writes all this stuff all these sort of uh, Jewish recipes and I've been looking them all up I'm going to cook them all um and but it is just so funny and it made me realize that um like the brilliant and intelligent and funny writing of women that has been put into the category of chick lit and like rom-com. Um, you know, it made me think, oh, you know, it, it was okay for me to love those films and see myself in them and not feel like a guilty feminist about it because this book is one of the cleverest and funniest books that I have ever uh, read and it is just like there's no rules it like that like as somebody who writes books like you, you sort of try and stick to sort of narrative arcs and and linking things from one thing to the other it is literally just a crazy stream of consciousness of a woman who's picked up and that is like I just I found it so like oh look we're allowed to be like a little bit like crackers and like just write like fuck you basically to your ex-husband mm-hmm. I just really 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 loved it and it made me feel much 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 more like uh like not even angry at the way that that sort of literature gets presented um but um at like it made me really like chuffed that like those those brilliant funny witty women um and I absolutely love like that sort of um the books where you know I really like thirty year old woman moves to works in a works in an advertising. Why do they always work in advertising? Uh, advertising always. <laughs> always like they're either a writer or they work in advertising. Those are the Literally only two journalism jobs or, or advertising. Single women are not even like those two jobs. I have no idea why. <laughs> but if you're if you're in your thirties and you're not in one of those jobs, you're probably married already. Um, that's the only <laughs> thing I can assume. But um, I absolutely, you know, I absolutely love those books, and I think that they should be considered to be funnier than they are. So I read a huge amount of uh, Mari McFarlane um, books, uh, which are essentially like rom coms in a book, but they're really funny. They make me laugh out loud, um, and and so yeah, I uh, the 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 Nora Ephron I mean I feel like I just grew up with Nora Ephron um all my life there has been some uh you know film playing in the background that I loved but pretended I didn't because the boys wanted me to like Apocalypse Now uh which by the way is really boring um don't don't feel you ever have to pretend that you enjoyed Apocalypse Now. It's very dull. Uh, and Heart of Darkness isn't even that good a book. I've read it as well because that's how much I wanted to pretend to boys in the 1990s that their culture was better than mine. And now I say, you watch Sleepers in Seattle, it's way better. Oh, God. Would you say that um, Nora Ephron's writing has inspired yours in any way? And if so, or even if not, who, which other female writers do you feel have has shaped the way in which you write and your approach because you've spoken so nicely and eloquently about you know how women's writing especially when it's funny and kind of irreverent and light-hearted can be just kind of shoved into the chick lit category but that's something that you're kind of embracing now in terms of how you consume media so yeah I'm interested in what what your influences have been 
Yeah, I mean, I think my influences are people like Catelyn Moran, without question. Mm. Um, but also um, the sort of capturing that sadness. So much of my activism comes from seeing sad things, really hard and difficult things. Um, and so the idea of capturing sadness to inspire people, I think, is much, much better done mm. uh, by women writers. Women writers writing about their childhood write them differently to male writers writing about their childhood. And it rarely seems like, you know, for want of a better word, misery memoirs, um, it rarely seems uh, like misery. It seems like something that has to be changed. So um, I read, like... Um, Oranges are not the only fruit when uh, I was uh, when I was only about 11, 12 years old. And it is uh, about uh, this young woman growing up in a very, very, very religious background and being a, a lesbian. Um, and the way she draws the sort of sadness of the characters in her childhood, um, it, it's always about making change and, you know, well, what are we mm. going to do with this sort of pain and how are we going to, you know... It's got to be better. We've got to hope, strive for better, and so that. And I think that women writers do that much, much, much better. Uh, I think that that from the women writers that I've obviously there's some crap ones, um, but from the women's uh, writing that I read, I think that they are much, much more hopeful about sadness um, mm. than. And, and I find that really, really inspiring. I wrote a, a very short book recently about my mum dying um and what that had meant to me and the whole time I was expecting to feel really really sad but I just felt really like happy about the sort of sadness that I'd had to go through as if it was you know a good part of me and I think that that women are much much better at that because I think that every day they face more challenge. Your fourth bookshelfie is Peepo by Janet and Alan Orberg, um, which is a classic book for young children. I'm interested in what it is you like about it and when it was you first read it. Uh, I literally like everything about it. I like the pictures. I like. I could. I could. I could literally give it to you verbatim now. I could read. I could without looking at the book even slightly. I could read it out to you from reading it to my children. But I was read it as a child. Um, and it has uh, stood an enduring test of time. The, the mother in it wears her hairnet. There's literally a line where that says her hairnet on her head, and she looks like my grandma. Um, it is a story of a baby and the things that he can see from his his whether he's in the pushchair or in the garden, and what he's talking about is his family. I could literally cry talking about it. I. I absolutely love the book, Pipo. It is almost certainly my favourite book of all time um, <laughs> because uh, it meant something to me when I was a kid and also just mm. the imagery because it's like based in, I think it's it's like the sort of 1940s or 50s um, where well, you assume it's the 40s. 
the imagery of the sort of back-to-back housing that they're seeing is the you know the housing of my grandparents that I grew up in Mm. and like the tin bath and there's all this sort of stuff that the baby can see that is sort of gone away now that it's nostalgia but it was hanging on in my childhood and certainly not hanging on in the childhood of my children who I read Pipo to pretty much every single night of their uh, lives until they were about eight Um, so I read it for a solid every night for a solid like 13 years um, and never once got uh, upset and I remember vividly my favourite memory of reading uh, the book People although I'm not entirely sure I was that chuffed about it at the time no I think I was the second time um, was there's a scene at the end um, where uh, he, he's looking at his parents in the hallway from his cot uh, the baby and what he describes he can see is his father who's in a uniform kissing his mother goodbye and the sort of the idea being that it's the war and either his mm. father is going away or like he's like on the home guard you you know you, you don't know it's like it's, it's written mm. from a child's perspective you don't know yeah but there's this moment where and the, the line is and his uh his his father kissing him goodnight and I burst into tears when I was reading it to my eldest son, Harry. And in that moment, without taking a test, without knowing or anything, I went downstairs to my husband and I said, I think I'm pregnant. Uh, because I literally, oh I've read God. this book so many times and I just burst into tears at this line. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, uh, and I took a test and I was pregnant with my second baby, darling. Um, and yeah, so it meant like it. it, it well, women's I, intuition, bloody hell. It is, indeed. <laughs> also, you just cry out our tired a lot in early pregnancy, so they're quite tired. <laughs> I was like, I swear to God, I'm pregnant. So, and my husband went and got me a test. Um, and I was pregnant. Um, but um, the yeah, it is like, and I don't, obviously I don't read it to my children anymore, but I buy it for every baby that um, comes into the world in my life. I buy a copy of Pipo for them. Um, and it is just, it's just a perfect book. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. Can you tell me a bit about your book, Mother, and the process of writing it and you know, why you felt it was important to write and I suppose how you felt writing it. So that's lots of questions in mind. Yes. Um, it's funny because I wrote uh, the um, my second book, Truth to Power, was uh, gave seven examples of people who had taken on powerful institutions um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, as the ordinary person. And the, the whole point is to inspire people to do something. And I was asked to talk about it. I, um, at uh, like a publishing event uh, for the publishers, Hachette. Um, and I stood on the stage and the story I told was not one that was in the book. Uh, the story I told was the story of my mum taking on ICI, the drug company, for giving my nan a drug that had made her go blind and over a 10-year period finding hundreds of people who'd been in the same situation and ultimately suing them for nearly £10 million by 1981. Um, and I told this story of my mum, and I then thought, why the hell did you not write about that in the book, you idiot? Uh, like I don't, and I don't, I don't know why. I, I genuinely don't know why. I, I feel like I don't know enough about it, and I didn't ask enough questions of my mum uh, about it while she was alive because it wasn't something that she talked about a lot. Um, and it was before I was born. 
Um, but we all knew that she'd done this thing and we all knew that it had happened um, and that she was like Erin Brockovich, essentially. And she did it while she was 24 and had two children and lived in, like, you know, in a terrace house in the Black Country. Um, so she was by no means... They didn't have phones to find or the internet to find all those people. She went up and down the country searching for them, holding meetings and knocking doors and things. Yeah, so, so like, you know, and took on a drug company. Um, but I don't know why I didn't include it, so I thought I should write. I should write about this. Also, um, uh, a, a very famous uh, writer um, was at this event um, and said to me, "You know, you should definitely write a book about your mom." So then I was a bit like, "Oh, maybe I should do this." Uh, so then the opportunity came up uh, by the Birmingham publisher um, who, who does this sort of crowdfunding publishing. And I knew him. I, I grew up with him. Uh, it's like a village. We all know each other. I know there's a million people there, but honestly, my dad definitely lent your dad his ladders in 1974. We all are connected somehow. So uh, I knew this uh, bloke and he came and got in touch with me and said, would you do something? Um, and I thought, well, this is a good opportunity for a Birmingham publisher, a place my mum grew up and loved to write the story uh, of how my mum had done this amazing thing, but also talk about, it's like an opportunity then to talk about how she, uh, that what it felt like to lose your mum and the idea, the political idea of being a mum and why it gets put on a pedestal and how that holds us back. Um, And I got to do all that while putting my mum on a pedestal. Um, And uh, it was, yeah. And also tell your mum gags, which I have always wanted to basically write a book of your mum gags. The first time I ever went on Have I Got News For You, you know, the blanks round where they like have like the, yeah. the headlines and they've got bits blanked out. My husband said to me, you should just say your mum for every answer. <laughs> we are now on your fifth and final bookshelfie this week, which is The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. Um, what is it about this book? that resonated with you and when did you read it? I read it as part of my A-levels. I studied A-level English, which I can't say I enjoyed very much, uh, I have to say. But I think it was the only book that it was... Uh, I didn't enjoy it very much. I kept being told, so you kept being told that I wasn't very good at writing, actually, incidentally. Um, That's ironic, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I'll, it's like one of those moments where I'll find that teacher. But it's probably right because I was probably too busy smoking fags and not paying attention to class. Um, but I think it, it, in my memory, memory from the text that I studied in fact it definitely was it was the only one that was written by a woman um and um I remember vividly there is a scene of sexual violence in the color purple um and I remember during my GCSEs we had read Tess of the D'Urbervilles um and obviously there's a scene of sexual violence in that as well and I remember vividly thinking about the difference between the way a man had written uh you know an act of sexual violence and a woman had written uh, an act of sexual violence um and i think that uh that and i remember watching it on that we watched the film it's got Whoopi Goldberg in it I believe it's got Oprah Winfrey in it as well um and I remember that was probably the the most exciting thing we're like oh look it's Oprah Winfrey uh because that's how much we paid attention at school but um 
I remember um, the the way that it was sort of tried to be done, sort of the sort of element of sexual violence is tried to be sort of done off screen. And um, I remember our teachers talking Mm -hmm. to us about it as if we wouldn't understand it, even though the vast majority of us absolutely did understand uh, issues of sexual violence. Um, And I think it just stayed with me forever the book the color purple I just remember thinking it was the only book really that I read uh, that I ever was asked to study that I felt any sort of connection to um Jess you and I are both contributors to the feminist book society's book this is how we come back stronger feminist writers on turning crisis into change and your essay was about the epidemic within a pandemic and about you know the rise of domestic violence um something that you've spoken about at length um you worked at women's aid before um getting into politics i'm interested in you know your thoughts essentially on um the that rise of domestic violence within the pandemic and lockdowns um especially i suppose the response to it because it does feel like that conversation was very sort of belated in terms of people realizing what you know the logical outcome of women being Mm. locked down with um, you know potentially abusive partners would be yeah I mean it was it was absolutely maddening the second that it was happening in China we were getting reports um in the sort of women's sector from uh, concerns um around domestic abuse um during the lockdown in China but also um the sort of miss uh, the potential whether you know no no necessary evidence that it was happening mm-hmm. but the potential for miss categorizing people's deaths Um, and how this might give impunity and so that was my very first concern and this was long before we this was in December before we were going into lockdown so we were discussing it and we were trying to raise it through the right channels and government and 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 talk to people about it but when the lockdown hit the 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 fact that the the messaging and uh, you know no political messaging not take back control not make America great again has ever been as good as stay at Mm -hmm. home um I, I, literally it was so clear it was like that is the instruction and to me it was just absolutely maddening and we were begging for weeks for the messaging to be unless you are not safe at home in which case this does not allow for account for victims of domestic abuse and so for the first few like the first month of the initial lockdown it was like whack-a-mole trying to find all of the issues that women were facing and you know what I genuinely don't think I thought that referral would go up in the way that it Mm. did I didn't see that coming I have to say I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't think that the pandemic would cause more domestic abuse and I still don't think that it it did but um, it, it gave people a moment to be like, do you know, I can't be locked in here. I'm going to have to ring a service mm-hmm. now rather than the idea. I don't, I absolutely don't like the idea. And it's what we've seen a huge amount of as the court cases for the murders that happened in initial lockdown mm-hmm. start to to roll through um, the courts is this idea that people snapped mm-hmm. in the lockdown. Um, like, you know, I had a stressful first bit of lockdown. I, 
you know, I was dealing with a huge amount of logistics mm. in my constituency. Um, I didn't kill my husband yeah. because I was stressed about it. Um, and so I think we have to be really, really careful about how we talk about it. But the thing that was really difficult was like all of the things that women have been complaining about for a long time, whether that's like the child services, um, child um, financial services agency, the people who make sure that your husband's paying you your maintenance. Mm um and like you know and also the family courts these these are issues that have been raised with us for many many years that there was always problems with victims of domestic abuse they immediately all of the systems sided with the men so it's like oh yeah if he's been furloughed he doesn't have to give you any money anymore and she's like yeah well what about me i've been furloughed like uh that means i've got no money to feed my kids uh, uh and then they were like oh you know there were incidents where um, visits were forced with um, with previous partners. There were kids who were left, uh, like on a on a day visit to somebody, and then they COVID was being used as an excuse why the kid couldn't be returned to the mother. It was all sort, you know, it was a manipulator's dream come true. And so, in the early days, what we were trying to do was to find all these incidences of where the system in lockdown was going to fail. Um, as well as the issue of, you know, the, the fear of women not being able to leave the house was so palpable to us all. Um, but, you know, I, what I do think happened during uh, the pandemic with regard to domestic abuse is I think that the country cares about it more than it did before. And I think the response to the Sarah Everard murder... Uh, for all of the reasons why people have questions about why that woman, why that woman caused the outpour uh, that she did, I don't. And there's, you know, huge amounts that that could be said um, with regard to that that should absolutely be listened to. But I cannot help but think that it was the timing during a global pandemic when, for the first time, everybody had had a universal experience of being locked in their home. And people were, for the first time, able to actually physically check their privilege. You know, it's that sort of the throwaway thing that gets said, isn't it? But for the first time, you heard people saying, like, my constituents, would, when they'd get in touch with me, they would be like, thank you for doing what you, you, you can. I understand I might have to come. You know, don't, don't worry about me today. There are mm-hmm. other people who need your help more. And there were people who say, you know, it's terrible. I really want to see my mum. I'm hating it, but at least I'm safe mm-hmm. in my home. Like, there was this con- there was this overall sense of people checking their privilege. Um, and I think that victims of domestic abuse and children who were being abused in their homes mm. became the top of people's list. Mm. And, you know, that is a silver lining to the the world's greatest cloud. Um, but what we have to now do is make sure that we keep our foot on the pedal and we don't allow a system breakdown um, to happen again and that we use it as an opportunity to listen to the things that the women were telling us. Right. Like, we're brilliant at assessing. Women have been telling us what was going to happen if something bad happened for a long, long mm-hmm. time and not enough was done about it. We are done with your bookshelfies. You've been a brilliant guest. Thank you so much for your time. But I do have one last question and, as ever, it is the most difficult question saved to last, which is... If you had to pick one of your bookshelfies as your favourite, I kind of think for once I might actually know what, which one you picked. We'll see. <laughs> um, I might have a feeling here, but um, which of the books 
is your favourite and why? The, my favourite book in the whole world is Pepe. Um, yeah. I'm sorry so. that because <laughs> of this, um, that it's written by a man and a woman. Um, but um, it is just, it is everything to, I just as it, it feels like it's about my family. Um, and it also feels like it's about my mum and dad's family. And it also mm. feels like it's about my son's family. And that oh. is in it, just, you know, in a lovely little timbre of, and the way that you read it is so lovely. Um, that, you know, I, the thing is, is if I had to get rid of them, you can't take it away from me because I can just repeat it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jess. <laughs> I'm Yomi Adegake and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk, where you can discover this year's shortlist of six incredible books. You definitely want to click subscribe because in our next episode, we will be jumping into Piranesi by Susanna Clark and how the one-armed sister sweeps her house by Cherie Jones in our final shortlist book club. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. <laughs>